I love the words of this chant and especially that image of being drunk with God and get drunk with thy name. If there's anything we should intoxicate ourselves with is just that consciousness and especially these names that they assume, you know, they're like mantras in themselves. Any self-realized master's name, Yogananda, Christ, Krishna, Sri Yukteswar, Buddha, Ramakrishna Paramahansa, you just take any of these names and you can just get completely drunk with that consciousness that that name embodied, even if it was for just a brief moment in eternity. It must be funny for the, or fun for these great masters <laughs> up there, like looking and <laughs> looking at all of us, kind of dividing them up and saying, yeah, Krishna and yeah, Christ and yeah, yeah, and yeah, wo And these rule the West <laughs> and these the and, East. You know, just these little this. divisions that we love to make. But of course, there is no division in them. But it does help um, for us to be able to have some point of reference to tune into. And so if in that sense, Krishna is, you know, your point of reference, then yeah, be and stay true to him. But not um, kind of at the exclusion at everybody else, but recognizing that he includes all of those states of consciousness in one. We're on chapter 13 now. Um, I don't know if you've been tuning into a theme and we've, you know, we've done like 45 whatever odd classes so far. Um, the Gita generally is divided into, you know, has 18 chapters and it tends to form like six chapters, six chapters, six chapters, like uh, grouping. And the first six chapters tend to focus a little bit more on karma yoga. Although, of course, Krishna is not a linear, <laughs> you know, consciousness. He just goes back and forth a lot. But you'll see generally the theme is about action, activity, how to perform. The very first question of the Gita is, should I fight? Should I engage in the world? And then Krishna goes on on how best to engage. Then the next six chapters, which we've just ended, are about bhakti yoga a little bit more. More about self-offering, more about devotion, more about getting drunk with Krishna, more about perceiving him everywhere all the time. And now the chapter 13 to the 18th tends to be a little bit more about Jnana Yoga. So we go a little bit more into deeper philosophy, although we've touched a lot about on it, even in the previous chapters. So with that in mind, let's see what Arjuna asks Krishna now, because almost all our chapters tend to start with a question. Arjuna said, O Keshava Krishna, I long to know the mystery of Prakriti and Purusha, of Chitra and Chitragya. We have written the body and the inner perceiver. And we'll talk about that, of course. And of knowledge and its object. So Krishna, Arjuna wants to know about these differentiations. He wants to dive deeper. He's just had a deeply divine experience of Krishna in his you know, Virata Roop, where he just becomes the infinite. He's then gone into a deeper understanding of the need to love Krishna more than just try to understand him. But now he wants to understand, especially what he's trying to understand is the role of the body and of the soul, both as the individual, which is, which is the Kshetra and the Kshetragya, and but also as Prakriti and Purusha, where Divine Mother is the body, and Purusha is that divine spark of the father, of the soul within. And to that end, he says, what is the purpose of knowledge? What is it that I'm trying to gain? You tell me this, you're telling me all these things that I need to know, but what is its true objective? So these are Krishna Arjuna's 
kind of questions of this moment. So let's see what Krishna responds. The blessed Lord replied, O son of Kunti Arjuna, those who know truth perceive this human body as the Kshetra, as the field, and the knower of the field, the soul, as the Kshetra. So we're talking about a battle, right? We're talking about Kurukshetra me Yehorai. So already this is another little moment for us to realize this isn't about some outward battle. This isn't some Kurukshetra going on. We talked about it that if you actually been to Kurukshetra, you'll see it's a very tiny piece of land where lakhs and lakhs of warriors would not have gathered. The Kshetra that's happening, the field where this battle is taking place, is taking place inside us. Our body is this field. But what is the body? Krishna is not talking about the physical body. When Krishna says body, when any scripture talks about body, we're talking about three bodies. We're talking about the physical body, we're talking about the astral body, we talk about the causal body. And it is behind the causal body that the soul dwells, that the perceiver of all three bodies. So when we're trying to break identification, um, Paramahansa Yogananda defines the ego as the soul identified with the body. And we tend to think about, oh, with this particular body. But it's not about, this body is the final, most condensed version of what we've created, that this is who I am. But behind this is the astral body. That's where the chakras are. That's where our nadis are. That's the shushumna. That's where the energy and the life force interiorizes first to withdraw completely away from the physical body. Behind the astral body is the causal body, the body, the ideational body, the awareness that the entire universe is a thought of God. And behind that thought rests the soul, rests the purusha from that perspective. So it's important for us to tune into what this physical body is, what these other bodies are, and where does the soul play? Because soul is such a, again, it's a vague concept you know, for all of us. For many people think the soul is in fact the astral body. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, when you die, then the soul leaves the body. You know, like, the soul's not going anywhere. Like, you know, it's not like God leaves a particular place to move to another place. It's just the astral body then goes into its incarnation before it can assume a physical body again. And it's in the astral body that the ego as a separate identity really lives. In the causal body, the sense of separation is very, very minimal. But it's still just a little bit away from the soul. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in an example. But I also want to talk about the word field, because I like that word very much. Uh, here, of course, we're thinking about field, the field of battle, because the concept is of Kurukshetra. But field also just kind of from the perspective of a farmer's field. What's also helpful to understand our body as a field is that, like a farmer, whatever you sow, is what's going to come out. If I sow potatoes, I reap potatoes. <laughs> if I sow wheat, I reap wheat. If I sow rice, I reap rice. And it's a very nice impersonal way to look at, you know, this is my field. What, am, what thoughts do I want to sow here? What actions do I want to sow through it? What, you know, intentions do I want to sow? It's a very, very, like, be that farmer. Like, that soul is the farmer. He comes and decides, kya, is season mein hum kya ugaenge? And that's a lovely way to look at it because a field of battle seems a little like, oh, you know, like this is going to be hard. 
but a field of, you know, a farmer's field seems a little bit more loving and just like, and it's somehow a little more practical also. Like, yeah, of course, you know, we don't, we don't think about it when we're, when you're planting some seed in your garden. You never think that, oh, I have this beautiful, you know, bougainvillea and why aren't whatever marigolds coming out of it which is such an obvious reality but when it comes to our own lives we get really confused why is this happening to me why is that happening to me why is this person acting this way but if you just kind of tune into this is my field I must have planted certain seeds I've watered those seeds through incarnations and this is what I am now reaping it's just a very kind of impersonal way to allow because the field is kind of the soil where this process can take place take away the field and the seeds are just useless. So it allows this process to be fulfilled through us and it's just helpful to kind of tune into that. Know me also, O Bharata Arjuna, as the silent knower in all kshetras. So Krishna is saying, not only is there the kshetra which is, you know, the body and not only is there a kshetragya which is the soul, which is the perceiver, but know that I am in all kshetras, in every body I am present. Essentially, I am that soul. Every soul is a spark of me. I consider true wisdom to be the understanding of the kshetra, the field, and of its relation to kshetragya, the perceiver of the field. So Krishna's definition of wisdom, I understand true wisdom to be that where you realize the relationship between the body and the soul. The purpose of the body and the place the soul holds in that particular purpose. And for that, I'd like, and we've done this example many times because it's just a handy example. But I'd like to always come back to, just to help us understand what this soul is, what this state of pure consciousness is, and how can it be removed from all that is going on. It's just a hard concept to feel and the example that our guru would always use is the example of dreams of sleeping so let's just kind of run that through again in our minds every night we go to bed what do we go to bed we lie down our life force withdraws away from this particular body and say you have a dream we've all had some dreams not every night i'm worst at remembering my dreams narayani is amazing at remembering them but we always have some projection that takes place at night. Now, what is the dream? Who creates the dream? Our own consciousness creates it. But what does it create? It creates absolutely everything. It creates the roads. It creates the trees. It creates the people. It creates the breeze. It creates the clouds. It creates the sun. It creates the heat of the sun on the skin in your dream body. It creates you as being separate from everything else. So in your dream, your consciousness is everything, has created and manifested everything. It sustains everything. Yet you're in your bed, not really involved at all in the dream. You're not out there jumping around, but your dream body is. And in that, even though your consciousness pervades every aspect of the dream from the tiniest grain of sand to the thoughts that your dream body is having to the sensations of anger jealousy confusion fear whatever it is your dream is playing out all that is you all that is just a product of your consciousness and in that you also separate yourself and say i am this 
and everything else is separate. So you create an ego where your consciousness chooses to identify with one body, even though you've created it all. So this is how the concept of the soul, and in this, how is the dream created? The dream's created thus. When we go to bed, um, in our subconscious mind, we stored all our memories, all our perceptions, all the tendencies and experiences that we've had, both of this life and of previous lives, and they rest, physically speaking, in the posterior part of our brain. That's where the subconscious mind is physically held, although, of course, it's not a physical space. And when we go to bed, what happens is our life force interiorizes away from the body, it withdraws into the spine, and all that life force goes and rests in that posterior part of our brain. So essentially, our thoughts, which is the causal body, get energized by our own prana, which is the astral body, and then project and create what we perceive in our dream to be a physical reality. So all three bodies are manifesting right there and then. Our thoughts, our life force, energy projects, it's like the light from the booth that projects that dream, and then the actual experience of the dream as a physical reality. As Yogananda said, when somebody told him, if it's all a dream, what difference does it make? And he says, well, if in a dream you hit your head, your dream head still hurts. <laughs> so you're going to have to deal with it. If it's all a dream, what difference does it make? Well, here you are. You still, we still keep banging our head nonetheless. But can you imagine? I mean, just if we just step away from this, it's such a beautiful description. Because how do the scriptures define God when they talk about you know, Vishnu? He's, he's sleeping. He's sleeping on his Sheshnag. And he's projecting the entire universe. And then from him, Brahma comes out. And from their creation. So that's the flow. Brahma comes from his navel. The navel represents the Manipur. Manipur represents the fire. Fire represents the prana, the energy. Thought energized into creation. And so that's what's we're doing it every day. Yogananda said, every night you become gods. Because you withdraw your awareness away from the physical body, from the identity to this limited sense of self, and you create a universe of your own. Now, Krishna is saying true wisdom is for us to understand those chitra, that field, and our relationship to that field. And that's how the entire process of yoga is created. How do I get to withdraw from that dream and recognize, in fact, I'm not in the dream, that I am the dreamer. Because when you awaken, it's like, oh, that never even happened. So when a self-realized master awakens, he's like, oh, <laughs> that never even happened. Because in God, it's just all happening simultaneously. So you can have consciousness that's separate. I was also thinking about, you know when you're a child, um, you always think that the adults just know everything. You know, you're just waiting for this moment, like, oh, when I grow up, I'll also know. But I don't think I've actually changed at all. Like, you know, people tell us, a lot of our friends who are like in their 60s and 70s, they stay, they think, we still think we're kids. You know, I just, that concept that we've actually grown up, because there's that consciousness inside us, the body's going through all these changes, and yeah, experiences are being developed, and certain understandings are being created, but that sense of self really hasn't changed. I still don't think I've grown up. I, I can still very much identify myself. Sometimes Narayani and I joke like, you know, like, 
when you see like an 18-year-old kid, somehow you think like, oh, I'm, I was just 18, you know, I should be hanging out with them. And you go close to them and then they call you uncle and it's suddenly like a shock to your life. Like, Do I look like an uncle? You know, because I don't feel like an uncle. But that's just how it is, right? There's that awareness inside us that just remains unbroken. And that's just the perceiver. Because it's not, we're not, you know, the person in the dream's not perceiving the dream. The dreamer is perceiving the dream. The ego is actually not perceiving the dream, you see? We think the ego is the guy who's getting really involved. But it's the dreamer who's assigned and said, this is me. And I'm going to perceive this dream through this character. And so that's really going, can you imagine all of our dreams kind of colliding together and we're creating this really mass consciousness of an awareness and none of us are actually, <laughs> actually in there. We're lying in bed somewhere just <laughs> enjoying this dream. And some dreams are not as enjoyable. They turn into nightmares as well. But nonetheless, none of it is us in that dream. So that's just an awareness. That's not, you know, it's not an intellectual process, of course. But it's an awareness that's just helpful to have at times. To be able to withdraw back into the chitragya, into the perceiver. Otherwise, we're just too close to it. And when we're too close to it, you know, we just get so caught up, just like the guy in the dream gets so caught up. You wake up in the morning and you really think that, oh my goodness, I had six children and you know, I was really poor and I had to feel, feed all these six children. And, oh, thank God I didn't, I don't have to do that anymore. But that's how we feel in the world, right? I have all these things to do, I have all these duties, I have all these things I have to fulfill and all these things I need to know. And then you wake up and you say, well, I didn't need to do any of that. All I needed to do is shift my awareness from the dream to the dreamer. And that's what Krishna is saying is true wisdom. Hear now briefly about the field, about the Kshetra, its attributes, its cause and effect principle, and its distorting influences. What distorts us from actually knowing what it truly is. Also what he, which is the Kshetragya, is, and the nature of his powers, truths which have been sung by sages in many ways, in chants of the Vedas and in well-reasoned, conclusive aphorisms of the Brahma Sutras. So Krishna is saying, I'm not going to tell you anything new. I'm just kind of revealing again what the sages of all incarnations have understood, have been singing about, have written about in the Vedas. And it's important that Krishna is saying, I'm re-establishing the Vedas and the Puranas, because at times you see him kind of saying, kind of being a little stern. It's saying, those who follow the Vedas alone won't get this. Those who only follow the ancient Vedic rituals, they won't understand this. But now he's returning back. Even in the Bible, since we're bringing Christ in so much, when, by, when Christ came, he said, I am not here to destroy, but I am here to fulfill the prophets. Because a lot of people, you know, you get a self-realized master to come and then you just assume everything But they're not here to kind of break these beautiful, unbroken traditions. But they're here to refine them again and again to whatever that moment is, depending on what the dream is doing at the time. So Krishna continues, succinctly stated, the Kshetras are composed of both undifferentiated and differentiated nature. 
their differentiated nature being, and now he'll tell what our bodies are composed of, being the gross elements. What are our, the elements? Earth, water, fire, air, ether. That's five. Keep counting what all co the constituents of our being are. Then come the ten senses. And the ten senses are five organs of sense, five objects of sense. What are the organs of sense? The ear, the tongue, the skin, the hand. No, not the hand. The nose. Because we got the, the, the nose, nose and the, the eyes. eyes. He's written it here, but I'm testing myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then what are the objects of our sense? The hearing, the feeling, the sight, the smell, and the taste. So that's 10. 10 plus 5, 15. Then come the five organs of action, which are the hands, the feet, the mouth, which is speech, the anus, which is excretion, and the reproductive organs, which is procreation. Then come the one then comes one sense conscious mind. Now the mind depends on these 15 previous things that we talked about. The mind in itself has no reality if it's not being fed, if it's not being fed by the senses, by the sense objects, through our organs of action. Only then does the mind know how to relate to this world. So it's a sense conscious mind. Then comes the intellect, the ego consciousness, and the distortions of chitta. We've talked about how in Patanjali, Patanjali talks about these four aspects, man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta, right? Man is the culmination of these 15 aspects that Krishna goes through. The different senses, the different sense organs. Buddhi is the intellect, which is what allows us to then process all this information that these senses bring in and make sense of that information and be able to kind of analyze that information and say, ah, this is this, this is this, this is this. Then comes the ego consciousness. And the ego consciousness is all about how does this relate to me? The example that we often give is, of course, of the mind being the mirror, you know, just receiving the information, the intellect processing the information, which is, say, for example, the example Yogananda often used was of the horse. So it says, the mind just reflects the horse, the intellect processes and says, this is a horse. The ego comes and says, this is my horse, or it says, this is not my horse, or it says, this is my neighbor's horse, or it says, this horse is, you know, so many feet from me. Essentially, whatever it is that I have processed, now I need to see how it relates to me. How far it is from me, whether you know, it's mine, whether it's not mine, but the I becomes the part of every thought, every conversation, every word that we say, I becomes the kind of, you can say, vortex around which the world begins to revolve. But then comes what's called the chitta, and what Krishna is calling the distortions of chitta. And the chitta are the, is when you say, this is my horse, but it's the chitta that then says how happy I am to have a horse. Or it'll say how unhappy I am that I don't have a horse. Or how bad that my horse is not as good as my neighbor's horse. Essentially, the chitta says, because of this reality, I have to feel a certain way. I have to either like it or I have to dislike it. It's either good or it's bad. It either makes me happy or it doesn't make me happy. And so Krishna here uses, where are we? He uses the distortions of the chitta being attraction or aversion, pleasure or pain, happiness or sorrow. 
So that's where the distortion really comes in because then we divide the world. When I'm in the dream and I divide the dream, up till the point you're in the dream and you say, Ye main hu. that's okay. Because even the great masters have to come and say, this is my body, I'm responsible for it, I have to feed it. But when in the dream you suddenly say, Ye main hu, and the drama begins. Ye mujhe pasand hai, ye mujhe pasand hai. This is good, this is bad, that person is not so nice, this person I love, that person I hate, paneer I will eat, but bhindi I won't eat, and so on and so forth, and the whole game begins. So that's the four aspects of our consciousness, fed to us through the senses. Then comes the body itself, then comes consciousness being perceived through the body. Not pure consciousness of the soul, but the consciousness being perceived through the body. And then comes what Krishna calls persistence. In Sanskrit, the word is dhritti. And what's an interesting thing? So he's saying, we're made up of all these things. We're made up of these 15 sense aspects. We're made up of five elements. We're made up of the mind, the intellect, the ego, the chitta, the feeling aspect. Then there's the body itself. Then there's consciousness perceived through the body. And then there's persistence, dhritti which is also to be thought of as willpower. So Krishna takes will as its own reality, as it's one of the elements of creation is will. Swamiji writes, it actually takes will on the part of God's consciousness to keep the body and this awareness of the soul <laughs> held together. The entire universe is being held by God's will. Just as when we're in a dream, it takes energy for us to hold the dream together. And when that energy starts dissipating, when that will is withdrawn as we're moving away from that state of consciousness, the dream begins to crumble and it completely fades away the moment the energy is no longer held in the subconscious mind. So that will is a very necessary element because the will decides where that energy is going to go. This is where I'm going to hold this awareness. And this is how I'm going to hold this awareness. So we've, we've spent a lot of our own willpower to ascertain, I am this body, I am this personality, I like this and I dislike this, and by Jove, nobody's going to tell me any different. And so then we get to, you know, of course, stick to this reality. Because that's what we've worked so hard into creating. The true insight, Krishna continues, bestowed by wisdom is revealed in the following qualities. So one of Arjuna's questions in the beginning is, what is true knowledge and what is its purpose? So here Krishna says, the true insight bestowed by wisdom, which he just revealed is, wisdom is understanding the relationship between body and soul. That, according to Krishna, is true wisdom. Once you've understood this, so this is Shankhya philosophy. This is not yoga. Shankhya tells us, why this world exists the way it exists, and what are all the issues that exist in the world. And then yoga tells you, how do I get out of this problem? But Shankya just lays that, ye ho pe. So that's wisdom. What's this body? What's the soul? What's their relationship? Now Krishna continues and says, the insight bestowed by this wisdom is revealed in the following qualities. Now, this is an important thing to just really tune into. These qualities that Krishna believes are the kind of byproduct of having this wisdom. Humility, unpretentiousness, 
harmlessness, forgiveness, integrity, service to the Guru, purity of mind and body, steadfastness, self-control, indifference to sense objects, lack of emphasis on one's own self, perception of the sufferings and the evils inherent in both illness, old age and death. I'm going to come back to a few of these because some of them are very interesting. Some are very obvious, but some are more interesting than others. Non-attachment, non-identification, this is another interesting one. Non-identification of the ego with one's children, wife and home and all things that that entails. Equal acceptance of both fortune and misfortune. Unswerving devotion to and identity with me through yoga practice. Love of solitude. Disinclination for worldly society. Perseverance in the pursuit of self-knowledge and aspiration towards true wisdom. Qualities opposite to these virtues are signs of ignorance. Okay, this is a list that's worth printing out, having before you and say, all right, do I have true wisdom? <laughs> Am I manifesting these qualities daily in my life? Firstly, I would like to point out, Krishna does not say, true wisdom is when you know your chakras. <laughs> you know, when you see people's auras. <laughs> when, you know, all that stuff that we think is like, that's all, that's all modern stuff, you know, that's all just come now. It's like the rishis weren't interested in the chakras and kitne nadis hain hamare and kitne aura ke colors hain. No, they hardly just, spoke. Yeah, those are just like nonsensical byproducts of as it is. Because yeah, you're going to have to go through the chakras and awareness of the chakras is nice, but you know, not an obsession with them. And it's just helpful to see from Krishna's perspective, he talks about nothing about, then you will know this, and you will know that, and you will have all the answers. For him, wisdom does not have anything to do with philosophy. For him, wisdom means these qualities. That's a very, very, very important. We're here in the Jnana Yoga section, and you're assuming, and Krishna is talking about really big things. Oh, the Prakriti and Purusha and soul and body. So you're like, oh my goodness, you know, I'm going to finally get the meaty stuff. And then he just says, well, at the end of all of this, you should have humility and unpretentiousness and self-control. So, of course, as I said, we'll just visit a few. Humility, forgiveness, integrity, I think they're fairly obvious. Doesn't mean that we actually have them all the time. But we know, we can see where this goal comes from. And again, have that list. And every day, even you can just say, Aj, at least let me choose one. But I'd like to focus on service to the Guru. I like how he just put that in there. Service to the Guru. He doesn't say service. He doesn't say service to mankind. He doesn't say service to humanity. Service to the Guru. And I took a little moment. I was just thinking about, you know, why would he kind of specify it to the Guru? And I just realized that the idea here is about freedom. And sometimes we, we don't even know what brings freedom. You know, I started thinking about why we serve the Guru, Narayani and I, and just how, how much that means to us. 
And sometimes people tell us that, oh, you know, you're just doing a wonderful service and you're helping so, buddy, so many people and it's just really, sometimes like, it's really helping me and, and it's just like, we never think about it that way. It's like, I'm not, you know, it may sound weird, but we're not really doing this to help anybody. That they're being helped is a wonderful byproduct. But we're here to serve our guru because we know that's where freedom comes from. Otherwise, I start wondering about, am I helping people? Am I not helping people? Are they good? Are they not good? How do they perceive me? Am I really, really helping them? Oh my goodness, I need to do so much more. Otherwise, how will they think? No, I'm not here for any of that. I'm here to serve my guru. And because it happens that part of my service to my guru or to our guru is involved with people, and that's just great. Mother Teresa put it just the most beautifully for me. Once somebody asked her, why do you serve you know, the lepers and the downtrodden and all these people? And you know, it's like, what, what drives you to serve them? And obviously they were expecting some sort of, you know, there's, there are also souls and God is in them and all that stuff that you know, tends to be the usual stuff that we would say. And all she says is, oh, because Christ told me to. And then she says, the day Christ tells me to do something else, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> because I'm not interested in serving the lepers and all. It's just because that's how I serve my guru. But you see, that brings so much freedom. Because otherwise, you get so personally involved. I did this and I did that and I need to do this and I need to help people and people need to feel supported. And you just get entangled. And I just, this thought came to me just like, whoever you serve, you entangle yourself with. If you serve people for the sake of serving people, you will get entangled with them. Your karmas and their karmas become enmeshed in wonderful ways. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But by the very fact that they praise you and they are so happy that you did this for them means you will gain a lot of good karma, which means also that it's still karma that needs to work out and that means the birth cycle continues. When you serve the guru, you get entangled with the guru. And everything that comes from people, even if they do say, oh, how wonderful this is helping me, it just doesn't stick to you. It goes directly to him. And that's a very important awareness to have. And that's why Krishna put it so, like, in there. He just didn't say service, because he could have just left it there. Service karo, bhai, good works karo, and logon ki sahayata karo, which is obvious. But he says, service to the guru. And I felt that was really important to tune into. Why to the guru specifically? Because Krishna is interested in freedom. He's not interested in fluffing up the dream. Is dream ko achha kaise kar sakte hain? That's not his intention here. How do I get out of the dream? is what he's interested in. And if that's your interest as well, if it's not, please do go ahead and do wonderful works because this world does need wonderful works. But if it is, serve a greater reality that then directs you to do this, like Mother Teresa, because she did help. She uplifted so many people and she continues to uplift so many people by the work she created. But she only did it because her guru asked her to do it because she felt that's what her guru wants her to do, not because people needed saving. Second thing to tune into, he talks about a result of this wisdom is the perception of the sufferings and evils inherent in birth 
illness, old age, and death. That's another very interesting thing I found. Like, it's like you'll suddenly become aware <laughs> that anything that is transient is going to lead to suffering. Anything that is transient. And that's why he, call, he says birth, illness, old age, death. He's just showing you that these forms are just going to keep changing and it's just going to keep moving again and again in that direction. And that there is no stopping it. But we cling to this process with all our might. Illness, we do everything to push it out of us and thoda thoda age ho hai. Like, we log humko uncle bol and we want to be like, we don't, I don't want to be an uncle. But like, ah, I don't mind being an uncle after all. What difference does it make? Because anything that is transient is going to lead to suffering. And evil, as we've established over and over again, just like in the Bible, they keep calling sin, you know, again and again, sin, sin, sin. And it just feels like this heavy thing. But evil in Krishna's concept in the scriptural concept is anything that continues to push you away from God. That means anything that continues to keep you in the wheel of Maya is considered evil, which is even good things. Anything that creates karma essentially is by the definition of whether I'm moving into the light or away from the light is evil. So as long as you're aware that anything that's transient is going to create suffering and is going to create more karma, if I try to hold on to it, if I try not just allow it to pass through me. And that's another very important perception because we're so obsessed with our bodies. Just greatly so. Any little change in it, we immediately just like we live for some made up fantasy of how our bodies should be and know that in there will be suffering and evils will be created as in karma is just going to be created this process is you're only pushing this process more and more as you try to hold on to these temporal reality. So that's another very important awareness for us to just start having a little detachment. Swamiji would say every evening or every day when you uh, take a shower, he says, as you're showering and you're putting soap or whatever all over you, he says, just keep telling yourself, soon this body will be dust. Soon this body will be dust. Not from like a nihilistic perspective, but what are you getting so attached to it for? Why are you getting so obsessed with it for? Soon this body will be dust. And again, these are just very important perceptions for us to have. We're already at 8.15, so we won't go into the one or two. We'll continue in the next class. Fortunately, time continues on forever and ever and ever. You can continue if you want. Well, I don't know. Otherwise, you know, I just keep speaking and <laughs> there's no end to my ever. Close my mouth for a little while. Okay. No, I'd like for you to pick it up from here and see that it's important practicality otherwise you know we just go on and on in these things and get caught up in the wondrous philosophies well there are so many subtle points that um, we spoke today about but i would like to pick it up from the chitta mm. from that aspect of the ego and swami kriyananda says here in his description about the ego and the chitta that if we are trying to unite with everything around us and with everyone, he says, the yogi 
the true yogi should not dislike to be in the company of worldly people because that disliking, that rejection, that pushing away creates a disturbance in the chitta. Mm. Means that the very fact that we are re, re, repulsing something, pushing away somebody, just to put their presence, even, even the very thought of them, we are already put them aside, it creates a disturbance in the heart. And he actually recommends every time you feel that ripple of this harmony in your heart, very consciously bring yourself to your, to your center. Think of a saint that inspires you and try to channel that consciousness where that saint is untouched by everything and you assume that personality as an actor would do, assuming the role of any other character. So I would recommend that perhaps this could be a very good practice for us during this week because we tend to divide our world we try to bring that chitta up by selecting what we like and versus what we don't like i'm only happy when i'm at the ashram i'm only happy when i with people that i like i'm only inspired when i'm doing what I want to do whenever I want to do it. So perhaps a good challenge for us is to at least once a day put ourselves in the company or in a situation that is not 100% favorable to us and, and see how the chitta, those waves affect our heart and how we consciously Choose to remain centered, no matter who is around us, no matter what's happening, no matter how dirty that is, how it smell, you know, how bad it smells, how awfully things are going, how tired I feel. How can I able to remain centered and touch? I mean, just thinking uh, the life of Saint Teresa. I mean, she worked with the lowest of society, with people who had, lep with lepers, with slums, with diseases that were deathly. And she was there in the midst, in the middle of it, touching it, kissing it, hugging it, so untouched by it, quite the opposite becoming one with it because she knew that's where God was and she wasn't going to be away from that. So that shows that we still have a little work to do with us and perhaps we don't have the perfect wife, perhaps, perhaps we don't have the perfect environment, the perfect boss, 
the perfect mother-in-law. But guess what? Um, that's a great opportunity to keep refining our chitta, to keep transmuting that feeling and bringing it from a human level to a divine feeling. So play with it. And whenever you find yourself during this week a little bit restless, a little bit judgmental, a little bit pushing away certain people, certain things, just, just watch uh, and see how can I transmute, redirect uh, this chitta and bring it from the I to you, to the divine, and start identifying more and more with that divine feeling that we want ultimately to unite with.